So there are all kinds of pressures we experience. You experience peer pressure on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, mothers, what kind of pressure do you experience when you first have your child? The pressure to be the perfect mom, right? To have the perfect child. And then there's talk about who was potty trained when, and you feel this pressure to, to have your kid potty trained earlier, and so sometimes you force your kid into something they're not quite ready for. But there's also pressure to like get back into shape right after you've had a kid. Ladies, you just had a kid. You don't have to go exercise right afterwards, all right? You don't have to go on a diet. In fact, when you're pregnant, your body is burning more calories than an Olympic athlete in training. Just think about that for a second. Your body's going through a lot. Guys, <laughs> sympathize with your wife when she's pregnant because her body's going through a lot. But there's all kinds of pressure, right? And men, we're, and, and in the workplace, not just men, but women as well, we experience other pressures in the workplace, right? There's always a pressure to perform, to excel, and sometimes that pressure is so tough that it starts to tempt you into unethical situations. Sometimes there's pressure in the workplace where you begin to cheat a little. So you might cut some corners to produce. You might do things that, that you know are questionable, and yet the pressure is there. And in particular, if you know you'll lose your job, if you know how you support your kids, how you support and feed your family is on the line, that pressure is difficult to deal with. We've been looking at the church that John is writing to, and there's several different local churches that he's writing to, but each one of them are struggling with different pressures, and they're, they're, they're handling the pressures in different ways. So last week we looked at Pergamum, and Pergamum, they, they, uh, the pressure was on to worship the emperor, and, and the people of Pergamum didn't think, you know... Emperor worship is real. He really, the emperor really is God. They knew better than that. But it was a civil duty. So if you weren't worshiping the emperor, you were a traitor. So the church dealt with this pressure through compromise. They said, well, you know, it's not real. So I can go ahead and participate in all that temple activity. I can go ahead and participate in worship of the emperor, because we know he's not really a god, so my heart's not really in it, so I can compromise. And God gave him a warning. Don't compromise. This week, we're going to look at another church that's facing pressure. Pressure to conform. But how they justify is a little bit different. And that's what we're going to look into today as we turn to Revelation 2. So we're looking at Revelation. We've started this series called Hopeful because of all people on earth. Christians should be the most full of hope, right? We know how it's going to end. 
So even when there's trials, even when there's persecution, even when the outside world turns up the temperature and we can feel the water boiling, we know there's hope. Even in the midst of pain, whether it's personal, whether it's tragic, there's still hope. So that's why we name this hopeful, and that's what Revelation is all about. As this church experiences persecution, now the persecution they're experiencing is different from what the church in an earlier time experienced. During the time of Nero, which was earlier, the persecution was ramped up and it was full frontal, you're going to die. You say you're a Christian, you're going to die. And that type of persecution is going to come up later on in the early church as well. And there are still Christians that are experiencing that type of persecution to this day. As Christian just explained for us what's happening in Haiti. And we need to be praying for those who are feeling the full frontal persecution. Reject God or you're going to die. That's the question. But Satan figured out another tactic to destroy the church. And it wasn't this full frontal persecution. Worship these other gods or you're going to die. Deny Jesus or you're going to die. Instead, it was a subtle persecution. It was kind of a backdoor persecution. It was, be a part of the in crowd, or you could be one of those losers over there. Be a part of the in crowd, or, you know, don't participate in the marketplace. And John's writing to this audience saying that even in the midst of this type of persecution, because we all would say that we could live for, or we could die for Christ. But sometimes living for Christ is more difficult. To go out with a bang, to be a martyr. Yes, that's exciting. I could do that. I could stand up on top of a mountain and say, I love Jesus as they open fire. But today, 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 live for Jesus? To let that faith play out in your life in, in a self-sacrificing Die to yourself so that you can show Christ's love to your wife. And you can put her needs before your own needs. So that you could die to yourself and you can put your kids' needs before your needs. That's hard work. That's not glorious. But in the midst of all that, we can have hope. Because we know how it ends. So that's what John's writing about. He's going to write to these seven churches in the midst of this type of persecution, encouraging them to live the day-to-day -day type of life for Christ. It's not dying for Christ, it's living for Christ. It's dying to yourself so that you can live for Christ. And so we started looking through all these dif the different churches in the first of four visions. Revelation is laid out in four different visions. The first of the four is the, are, are these letters to these churches. So we've been reading about these letters to these churches, and we're up to the church in Thyatira. So we're going to read Revelation 2, 18 through 29, if you'll open with me. It got cut off there, I believe. I, I don't... Oh, sorry. 29. <laughs> so there you go. Now you know which, what we're going to go through. So we'll read through it first, and then we'll kind of jump in there a little bit more. So into the church of, of sorry, into the angel of the church in Thyatira, Write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. 
and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you another bur- any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there's a lot going on here, and... uh, I don't want to bore you, so let's jump in and see what we got. So he starts off with, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira. So we, we need to know a little bit of background information. As we've been looking at each city, each city is addressed, and they're personally addressed. It's not like he takes it out of the historical and cultural context. Each city has a historical and cultural context, so it helps us to understand. We don't need to understand the cultural context, but it helps us understand it all the more. So Thyatira was the least known of all of the churches. So we looked at uh, Ephesus, that was a wealthy church, and we looked at Smyrna, which was uh, uh, another port city, religious center. We looked at Pergamum, a military def- or stronghold, defensive city. And then we get to Thyatira, and there's just not as much known. But we do know that it's along a trade route. So on this trade route, there is... Thyatira. And for this reason, it was heavily influenced by the trades. Now, when I say trades, I I do mean like the trading of goods back and forth, but also the different types of trades that there are. So there were tradesmen in Thyatira that controlled Thyatira. So uh, one of those trades was the bronze tradesmen. In order to make bronze, they would mix zinc with copper and they would make the army for the Roman military. That was one of the trades that they had. Uh, Lydia was also from Thyatira, and she was a tradesman who specialized in purple dye. And there were tactile trades. So so it was a very heavily blue-collar city that was filled with tradespeople. So last week we kind of talked about, like, if this was present-day America, what type of city would be compared, you know, Corinth might be Vegas, uh, Rome might be Washington, D.C., Ephesus might be New York. I think Theotera might be Detroit. Blue collar, the workers. Now, because of this, it was controlled by the guilds. The guilds are groups of people that had similar trades and they would, you know, they would do mentoring programs, but they would also kind of control pricing. 
They would control la uh, labor. You could kind of think of them as like the unions of today. Each guild had their own god or goddess that they worshipped. They had their own temple that worship would take place in. And in fact, the city was laid out in squares, and each guild controlled a certain square of the city. So now let's say you were a bronze worker, a bronze tradesman, that belonged to the bronze guild, and they expected you to come to the temple and participate in worship. And you said, well, I just, I just found this new thing out that, that none of those gods are real. But there is a real God that actually came to this earth, and he died because I'm a sinner. I, I have failed God miserably, and, and I've rebelled against God, and for that reason, I deserve death. But this God, this real God that loves me so much, came to this earth, and he paid the price for my sin so that I wouldn't have to die, but I could live an eternal life with him. And just to prove it all, just to authenticate his claim, he rose from the dead so that I could put my faith and trust in him. So I don't worship that God anymore. I don't go to that, that other God's temple. Now I worship Jesus Christ. And all the other tradesmen in this guild would say, you fool, you'll never make it in this guild now. This, this part, this temple is where the party is. It's where you're going to make connections. It's how you're going to rise to the top. And if you don't come to this temple and worship with the rest of us, we're going to cut you out. We'll kick you out of the square. We'll kick you out of the guild. And you will no longer have a job. The pressure is mounting for the people of Theotera. I know there are several in this congregation right now that are struggling with pressures at their workplace. And some of you have been called and convicted, but man, it's difficult when you're looking at losing your retirement. It's difficult to hold to what you feel Christ has called you to when you know you're going to lose out. The people of Thyatira understand what you're going through. Because they were going through the exact same thing. Conform or be cast out. This is a letter that can give you comfort. Because you're experiencing the exact same thing. Conform or be cast out. So let's find what, what he has to say. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the only other god that was really worshipped besides the guild gods and goddesses were, uh, was Apollos. Apollos was the son of Zeus. So once again, you can see how even his introduction is addressing the uniqueness of the situation of Thyatira. So he calls himself the son of God. And what this is, is a specific attack on Apollos. He's saying, look, you worship these other gods, and you worship Apollos, and you think Apollos is the son of God. He's not. Jesus Christ is the true son of God. And he rose from the dead to prove it. 
So that's, that's the address of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze were both pulled from the introduction that we read earlier. What's interesting is the Son of God is one of the unique parts of these letters that's actually not pulled from the introduction. It's how Jesus addresses himself that's very unique to the situation in Thyatira. It's not pulled from the introduction, but eyes like a flame of fire and burnished bronze both are. Eyes like a flame of fire, we read earlier, this means that these eyes are penetrating. They penetrate through any mask you might put up. You might have, we all wear masks at some point in our life, and these masks are falsehoods, right? So there were people in Thyatira that were putting up masks, these falsehoods. They were masquerading as something that they were not. And the idea behind the eyes that were ablaze, it's that he sees through the mask. He sees through your falsehood. And some of you throw up this falsehood that you're like the super religious person. You know, you've done all the religious things. You've even done the religious things that aren't required just to keep your bases covered. And you go to church, and you put on this mask that you're this great person, but deep down inside, you know there's a sickness in your heart. And although you've got the pastor fooled, which I'm going to tell you, it's easy to fool me. You're, you're not that special if you've got me fooled. But there's other people in this congregation that are more discerning that you don't have fooled. And the most important being that you don't have fooled, is God. He sees through the mask. He sees through the falsehood and sees who you really are. And what's even more amazing about that is he sees who you really are and he loves you. He loves you and he sees the potential in you and who you can become. And he's calling to you because he knows you better than you know yourself. He sees you for who you really are, and he loves you, and he wants you to become even more of who he created you to be. So he has eyes like a flame of fire that can see through any mask that you might make, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, once again, burnished signifies his glory, that he is glorious, and bronze signifies his strength. Bronze, that was the trade, that was like the major trade in Thyatira, and they would mix copper with zinc to make this really strong bronze material that they sold to the Roman Empire for armor. And what he's getting at is that he is stronger than. So Jesus is more glorious than, and he is stronger than the Roman Empire. And then he continues. This, so this is what he says. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So as Per the rest of the letters, we see this outline that he's been using. And the first thing is to state the works that they have. This church has four works. They have a love, this love for God that, that inspires a love for one another. And it's an agape type of love, a love that is self-sacrificing, that is giving to one another. They also have faith, meaning that they're holding fast to Christ. They're not abandoning Christ. And they have service. And this is specifically serving the poor. They're out there being the hands and feet of Christ, serving the poor and the needy. 
And they also have patient endurance, which is the ability to endure hardships. So they have four works here. And patient endurance is the ability to endure hardships. It's a commitment to even love your enemy as Jesus has commanded them. That person, or that group of people, I should say, that just kicked you out of the guild, can you still show love for them? How about the church in America today? Who is your enemy? Individually, who is your enemy? How are you loving them? How are you patiently enduring all the things they do to make you mad? All the things they do that just kind of sets you on fire. And how can you patiently endure it? So he knows these works, and then he concludes this section with, and that your latter works exceed the first. Meaning that you're continuing to grow in these works. You, you, you not only start out in these works, but these works continue to grow in your life. This is a great compliment that Jesus just paid these people. That they continue to grow. And it should be encouragement for us to continue to grow. And then in verse 20, we get the but. You've got your strengths, but here is where you're going wrong. Here are your weaknesses. Here's where you messed up. I think you done did mess up, church in Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servant to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Wow, there's a lot going on there. So she is, this, this prophetess Jezebel, is teaching them to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We've seen this pop up several times in different letters. This is a reference not just to uh, practicing sexual immorality and eating this food that's sacrificed to idols, but it's really a reference to participating in the temple life. For that culture, temple life was where you, know, you would live. That's, that's where you would uh, create relationships. That's where you would... Uh, build your uh, prestige. That's where you would celebrate any celebrations. So if people were getting married, it would be at the temple. And if you said, well, I can't go to the temple to participate in this celebration, they might say, well, you're no longer part of the club. You're no longer part of the family. If you don't go to the temple to participate in this celebration. But it's also where business deals were made. Hey, come we're going to go meet with so-and-so, and, and we're going to talk some business, and we're going to make some great business deals here. Kind of like the modern-day golf course. My mom always wanted me to get involved in golf, and I, I know there's people that like golf. I really don't, so I'm sorry. I still think you're, you're awesome, but I just don't like golf. And my mom would always be like, you're going to miss out on the business deals. And I was like, oh, I don't care because I just don't like golf enough. But it was kind of like that. If you wanted to make those deals, you'd go to the temple. So now you're missing out on these deals. And some people would come along and say, "Come, you know, just, just forget about that. Just come to this temple life anyways. So it's not just a reference to the immorality, to the food sacrifice to idols. It's a, it's a reference to temple life in general. Now where the, the sexual immorality came is the temples always had temple prostitutes. 
So you might go and you might eat this meat that's sacrificed to a different god, and then eventually they'd be like, but uh, if you really want to partake. So we've already got you this far, right? We've already crossed the line. So you might have said, well, you know, I don't like that I'm going to to the temple. I know Jesus Christ is really Lord, and I'll go just to make this business deal, but I'm not going to eat the meat, okay? I'm just going to go, and if they ask, I'll say, I already ate. So you go, but then the pressure starts to mount a little bit more. You're there, you're sitting at the table, and they're like, just just take a bite. Well, you've already crossed the line once. Why, Why not just cross the line again? And you see how playing on the line can start being a dangerous game. So many of us, instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ, we keep our fo- eyes focused on the line and we, say, we draw a line and we say, where's the line of what I can and can't do? And I'm going to run up to that line and I'm going to play on that line and I'm going to tippy-toe on that line and I'm just going to dance on it, but I'm not going to cross the line. But you get so used to being on the line, you get so used to being at the temple, that eventually you say, well, I can just cross it a little bit. Just a little bit won't hurt. And so you cross it just a little bit and you eat the temple meat. And then you're like, you draw a whole new line. Well, this is my new line here. I'll, I'll go to the temple. I'll eat a little bit of food sacrifice to the idols because I, I know those idols aren't real anyways. And, and I'll just kind of be here on this line. And then they start saying, but if you really want to be a part of us, you should definitely partake in the temple prostitution. And you're like, but I've got this line right here, but... But you know, this line right here, I'm, I'm getting used to this line, and, and it's okay to, to eat a little bit, and maybe, maybe I won't cross the line and, and fully partake. Maybe I'll just kind of flirt with her a little bit, just to show the guys that I'm one of them. So I'm going to flirt with this, this temple prostitute just to show them that I'm, I'm like them. And what do you do? You cross the line again. And then you draw a new line. You say, I'm going to be at this part of the line, and I'm going to play on this part of the line, but I'm not going to cross it until you do. And that's part of the problem with drawing the line and then running up to the line. Instead, we need to draw the line and run away from it. We draw the line and we say, that's a line I won't cross, so now I'm going to run towards God and away from that line. That's the only way that we as humans will not cross the line. But she has taught them and seduced them to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrifices, sacrifice to idols. So go to the temple. Be a part of the temple. So she was teaching and seducing. Seducing means that she was appealing to their desires. Basically, you can get what you want. You don't want to get thrown out of the guild. Come, it's okay. You can be a part of the guild still. You don't have to participate in everything, but come be a part of, this, part of the guild. The term prophetess, uh, represents being a mouthpiece for God. So in the New Testament church, being a prof- there were, there were uh, both prophets and prophetesses. And the idea was that the, the New Testament, the scripture hadn't be, been written up yet, and so there were still people that needed to act as a mouthpiece to God. That closed with the closing of scripture. After scripture was fulfilled, you no longer needed a prophet, you no longer needed a prophetess, you no longer needed someone to be a mouthpiece of God, because scripture then became the mouthpiece of God for us. So we no longer see a prophet or prophetess. But the problem with Jezebel here is that she's not a true prophetess. She's just claiming to be. So how would they know whether or not she was a real mouthpiece for God or not? 
Well, it would be to test it against Scripture. So they didn't have the full New Testament Scripture, but they had a good portion of the New Testament, and they had the Old Testament. So what they needed to do to find out whether or not she was real was to test it against Scripture. Now, I would say we don't have prophets and prophetesses in this age. But there are people that want to convince you to follow them. There are people that might even claim that they are a prophet or a prophetess. There are some people that will claim to be a special teacher. So how do you know if they're real? Well, you check it against Scripture. Is what they're saying according to Scripture, or does it go against Scripture? If it's going against Scripture, then you've got a false teacher. So what they could have done is said, hey, she's teaching us to go into the temple, to partake of the temple, to just to be along with the guild, to get along with it. Does that go along with what we see in Scripture? Is that what we see the warnings that, that God issues to the Israelites? That's something they could have done. Now, Jezebel wasn't her actual name. Uh, we don't know what her actual name is. Jezebel is most likely a reference to the Old Testament character of Jezebel. And it's important for us to understand who this character is to fully grasp what go, what's going on here. So most of us are familiar with the story. You've got uh, Israel comes into the Promised Land. Eventually, they divide into two kingdoms. Eventually, I'm giving you like the super Cliff Notes version, by the way. Eventually, you've got the, in the northern kingdom, Ahab as the king. Ahab wants to be more powerful. He wants to become more powerful, and he wants to hobnob with the other more powerful ruling class. And so what does he do? He marries a foreign woman, a Phoenician, and she was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. Now, the king of Phoenicia had all of these other connected connections. So for Ahab, and from a worldly viewpoint, this was a great marriage. It was going to send him into celebrity status with all the other kings and rulers of the known world. He would then be one of the premier rulers. And Jezebel, most people know her as like a worshiper of Baal. And so we get this false idea that she didn't like this prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah starts to confront Ahab and, and Jezebel. And we all know, like, the final big confrontation at Mount Carmel where he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest to see whose god would come and devour the sacrifice with fire. So they get 400 prophets of Baal, and they start doing their chants, and nothing happens. And then he starts to tease them, like, hey, maybe your god's asleep. Why don't you cry a little bit louder? Nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn, and he starts dumping the water on his sacrifice. More and more water. And they start making fun of him. And then he gives a little prayer. Boom! The whole thing is consumed by fire. And then he has all the prophets of Baal killed. Think about that in our modern terms. I think Elijah might have been called a terrorist. But Jezebel, so we hear this story and we think Jezebel was like fanatic for Baal. It's not true. We think that she doesn't like Elijah because he confronts the Baal worshipers. That's not true. She was totally cool with Elijah worshiping Yahweh. She loved 
people that worshiped Yahweh as long as they didn't confront her about her false gods. You see, she was part of the ruling class. She hobnobbed with people from all kinds of different kingdoms. She saw Bel and Ashtoreth and Yahweh as all these other gods that she could add to her table. Just, you know, a, a, a smorgasbord or cornucopia of gods that you could pick from. And so she loved to eat from this cornucopia. You could go to this god for this thing or this god. And she thought gods were things you could just simply manipulate. And so her, her sin wasn't that she was devout to Baal and, and therefore hated Yahweh. She hated Yahweh because of his truth claims, his claim that he was the ultimate truth. Her whole idea, she was what we might call the first relativist. Her whole idea was that all paths are the same, all paths lead to the same truth. You can worship your God, I'll worship my God. You can have your truth, I'll have my truth, and that's okay. The thing that she hated about Elijah and the thing she hated about Yahweh is there was a truth claim that was absolute. And that truth claim was, your God's not real, my God is. That's what ticked her off. So when we think about Jezebel and what, we're going, what, what our cultural context is today, we can see a lot of similarities. That there's this relativism that's very prevalent you have your truth claim, I have my truth claim, and that's totally fine. Really, this is a false cover-up for, I just want to be selfish and live my life however I want. So I don't want your truth claim impeding on my truth claim. You just go about your business, I'll go about mine. Don't confront me. One of the ways we know this is real is when you say that, you know, use the term relativism, that all truths are equal and all truths are, are just fine, then when you tell them, well, I'm an absolutist, I believe in Yahweh's claim as the, uh, as the final authority on truth, they don't say, well, that's great. They get a little mad, don't they? But if, we're, if everything really was relative, then they'd be like, oh, great, that's your truth claim. I'm going to walk on. No, relativism, truth claims, are just a cover-up for selfishness. There is no your truth and my truth. There is your perception of the truth and my perception of the truth. And our goal is to clear away our perceptions to get to the actual truth. And until we can do that, we're going to be living in a falsehood. So an example I like to give is I have a, a resting angry face, I guess. But there are times when I'm in thought, and Jen will bring an idea to me. And I'm kind of deep in thought about this idea. I'm thinking it, about it. I'm mulling it over. And while I'm mulling it over, I guess I have like a grumpy look on my face. Is that true, Jen? Yeah, she's like, uh-huh. I'm like, I can't even produce it right now. But apparently, oh, they're, they're, she says I need to work on my counseling face like this. No, that's a little creepy. All right, so, but she's definitely like, I'm just thinking about things, okay? But, but sometimes she starts to get down because she's perceiving that as me being angry. And she's like, why are you angry? I'm just giving you an idea. And then I say, well, I'm not angry at all. I'm just thinking about these things. So you see, her perceived truth is that I'm angry. And what she has to do is cut through that perception to what's reality. And what's reality is I'm just thinking about things. So I need to work on my thinking face. 
But do you see how our perceived truths can cause us some problems? We have all these perceived truths that aren't real. So what our goal, especially as Christians, Jesus says, I am the truth. So we better take the truth seriously. We believe in an absolute truth. So our goal is then to cut through our perception to get to the real truth. That's what we need to be doing. So Jezebel was trying to convince them, this prophetess was trying to convince them that God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, his claim on truth isn't real. So you see the difference between Pergamum that was like, just compromise because that's not real. Her, her tactic was something slightly different in that God's claim is not real. And as a result, you can begin to compromise because God's truth claim isn't real. That was her claim. And that is a dangerous, dangerous claim because once we toss out God's truth claim, then we can make up our own and we can start to live any type of morality we want instead of living a morality that is dictated by God and His Word. So their problem was that they tolerated her. Now, tolerance is talked a lot about in our culture today, and it is highly valued in our culture. And when we think about tolerance, we typically think of, you will accept. You will accept whatever I say. But by definition, that can't be tolerance. That's just acceptance. Uh, by definition, tolerance has to have a disagreement. So you can't tolerate someone that you agree with, you're just in agreement with someone. So by definition, you have to have a disagreement. And then within that disagreement, you have to say, but I respect you and I love you and you're still welcome here. Now, that's a really good thing. I think it is a high value for a society to function. Tolerance. To say, hey, I disagree with you, but I still love you. I still respect you. It's great for the workplace. I think it's great for politics. It's great for political discussion. When it comes to essential doctrine in the church, it is not great. Because once you start bringing in tolerance and saying, hey, you know, I really disagree with your doctrine on the deity of Christ and the atoning death and the inerrancy, sufficiency, and inspiration of the scripture. Uh, I really disagree with you on that, but why don't you come on and be an elder anyways? Then you have a church that is dysfunctional and going off in, to in totally different directions. You no longer have a unified church. So we don't, if you are an unbeliever and you're attending here, we love that you're here. We want you to continue to search the scripture. Hopefully we can explain what we believe to you. Hopefully we explain it well. But if you come in here and you start saying that you're the, the authority, uh, we're probably going to give you the boot. And I'll tell you why. As much as we value tolerance in our culture, there are things that we just don't tolerate. And you can think of a couple things right off the top of your head. Murder. You're not going to say, as someone comes in ready to open fire on everyone, you're not going to say, oh, that's just Jim. We just love him. I mean, we disagree with his practice on murder, but, you know, we're, we're tolerant. No, that everybody has a place where you draw the line on tolerance. For the church, we draw the line on essentials of the faith. 
Now, there are secondary issues that we can say, hey, I disagree with you, but I love you and I respect you. And because we both agree on the essentials of the faith, we will tolerate each other's disagreement on the secondary issues. But we have to absolutely demand that we agree on the essentials, or we can no longer be called a church. Now we're just a social club. A church is a group of people that are gathering around around the essentials of the faith and going forward with the essentials of the faith with the resurrection and, or the atoning death and bodily resurrection of Christ. Without that, we're no longer a church. We're just a club that believes in Scripture. We have to agree on the inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture. If we don't, then we're just a club that believes in some worn-out Bible. And we might as well move on to something new. So there are things that we can tolerate, but there are things that we absolutely cannot tolerate. What Jezebel was doing was something that they should not have tolerated, and that is what Christ had against this church. So then he goes on in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Because God is a God of love, He is also a God of mercy. And He didn't just give her a boot right away. He gave her time to repent. Think about that. Think about your own life. Where have you gone astray that God has given you time to repent? But in this time, she didn't repent. She only hardened her heart more to the point where she wasn't going to repent. And so he continues, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So she refused to do it. He gave her time. She only hardened her heart more. She only increased her walk off that cliff. And so he says, behold, because she refuses to repent, because she's hardened her heart so much, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. So there's a couple groups going on here. One is Jezebel herself. So she is coming up against a discipline unlike she's ever experienced before. But then there's two groups that have been following her. One who has, still has a time to repent. Those who committed adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. That means to, uh, to put through hardships. So God is going to put, Christ is going to put them through hardships unless they repent of their works. So this is a group of people that still have an open heart to repentance, that haven't hardened their heart so much to Christ that they will never repent, that they refuse to repent. This is a group of people that still are willing to repent. But then there's another group. And I will strike her children dead. This is a group of people that have refused to repent. They will absolutely not repent. They have hardened their hearts so much against Christ that they are going against Him in everything. And so they will be disciplined. They will be punished. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And so what the point of all this church discipline is, there's two parts to it. All these parts that, that Christ is actually enacting this discipline, one is to turn people back towards him. I think of Roman 8 and how God has blessed us with futility. God has blessed us with pain. So that we can recognize that there's something wrong with our life and we turn back to him. When you experience emotional, spiritual pain, you recognize that something is wrong. And when you recognize that something is wrong, you can turn towards God. So that's the first part of this discipline. The second part is to glorify God. Because a church that is wicked 
does not glorify God. A church that is wicked only insults his name. And instead of sitting there and and just receiving the insult after insult, God says, I'm going to clean house so that my name can be glorified among others. So those are the two purposes of of the discipline that he enacts. And I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned that some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the whole point of this is that he's not going to lay on. So part of Jezebel's thing was this deep. She would say that she's teaching them the deep things of God. The deep things of God is that everything's relative. The deep things of God are that uh, you can worship those other gods, and that's like worshiping God. And so he actually uses, in a sarcastic tone, he actually calls that the deep things of Satan. And what he's saying here is that I'm not giving you any other teaching. There is no new teaching. You hold fast to the word of God. I'm not going to trouble you and continue to change things on you. You you. You don't have to bear that burden. Just hold fast to what he's already taught until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So 26 all the way through 29, he, uh, he's actually referencing a couple different spots. Psalm 2 that's a reference to, and so uh, the, the rod of iron and the earthen pots that are broken into pieces uh, is a reference to messianic authority, meaning Christ has authority over all nations. The morning star is from Numbers 24, and it's also a messianic reference. And what we get in, out of both of these is that in Christ, we can find refuge. In Christ, we find mercy. That his mercy is new for us every day. In Christ. We can put our faith and we can put our trust in Christ because it is He that will give us safety, even if the guild kicks you out. You can find safety and security in Christ. As you feel the pressure to change, as cultural influences begin to heat up, and you're feeling pressure to change the convictions that Christ has given you. Hold fast that Christ has authority over all nations. You can find refuge and safety in Him. And there is new mercy in Him every day. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. There are so many attacks. There are so many pressures pulling us this way or that way. And yet your word is an anchor that holds us true. Help us to hold fast to your word. Submitting our lives to it, knowing that in the end, you are victorious. In your holy name we pray. Amen.